G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. G'day, Dad. How are you on today? Good, thanks, Rowan. Good to be with you again. Good to be with you as always on the podcast, and, and great to be with you for today's topic, which we've called Beginnings, Middles, and Endings When the Timing is Telling. So, Dad, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, Following on from last time when we talked about chronotypes, and that's where Daniel Pink in his book When was describing how our energy levels might vary through the day. And there's actually individual variation in those energy patterns. For example, some people might be larks, so they have a lot of energy at the start of the day, maybe a slump in the middle, and then some rebound of energy late in the day. But there'll be others who don't get up early like that. They might get up much later and their energy might peak more late in the day or even in the afternoon. So we get these varying patterns. But also Daniel Pink talked about something which isn't always highlighted in psychology of habit change or when we look to bring about some change in our lives, that when we're going through change or making a change, it makes a difference whether we're at the beginning of that process, in the middle or at late stages of that process. And I think he makes a good point that if we pay attention to the timing of where we're at, the beginning, the middle, or a late stage of a process, which can include starting a new job, or going through a course of psychotherapy, or some other change in our lives, doing a course of study, if we allow for the impact of where we're at, the timing of being at the beginning, the middle, or the end, then that can actually help us reach our goals better. Well, I think it's such an interesting thing. And, and as you say, like what we spoke about last week, it was interesting looking at that idea of how can we leverage timing for energy. And it seems to me a little bit that what we're looking to talk about today is how can we leverage timing to help change something? How can we leverage timing for change? How can we stack the odds in our favour once we recognise that there are some common patterns in there in terms of timing? Like we spoke about some of those common patterns maybe over the course of a day last week in terms of our energy levels. But I suppose one of the other things that Daniel Pink speaks about in that book is, I suppose... Could be over a day in terms of maybe we've got a project for an afternoon, but maybe over a slightly longer time frame. What are some of the common patterns in a, in a beginning, in a middle, and in an end? And if we understand some of those common patterns, how can we leverage those, I suppose, to help achieve the goals that we set out to in the beginning? Yes, and just say if we start off with the idea of the beginning. Now, most of us are going to relate to the idea it really helps to get off to a good start. And now actually, more broadly, we can think about that in life. Like if you get off to a good start in life, you're raised in a family where there's lots of support in your community, you have advantages, you have all your main needs met. Well, that's going to make a difference compared to being raised in poverty or being raised in a war zone or experiencing a lot of trauma early in your life. Now, even at that broadest kind of level, we understand that what kind of start you get makes a difference. But it also includes getting a start on changing a habit or getting a start with going through a course of therapy, starting a new job. So it's thinking about how can we maximise, as you say, get leverage from the differences that go with being at the start of something. And it's something that I found really interesting, Dad, when I was at university, actually, I suppose, just to highlight the relevance of, of some of this stuff that we're going to be talking about today. Like I remember I had a, a law tutor who basically said that we're going to be doing group assignments. And, you know, we did group assignments for all of our classes. But this particular tutor basically sat everyone down and sort of said, look, 
This is the process that I want you all to go through over the course of this project. Basically, at the start, I want you to all to come together. You're not even going to discuss the work or anything. You're just going to get to know each other. And obviously, uh, you carry out the work over the course of the project. But then at the end, regardless of how it goes, I want you to all come together and have a bit of a debrief. You don't even necessarily to be you know, chatting about the work the whole time, but you just emphasise the importance of, I suppose, that, that coming together period at the end. And, and what I found was, like I said, you know, doing group assignments across a whole range of classes, the ones where we were more planful in the way that we approached the project as a whole and we set out with the intention of going, well, what do we want to do at the start? What do we want to do towards the middle? And what do we want to do towards the end? In that situation, we just found that it went so much more smoothly. And I wonder if, if some of those, I suppose, ideas and themes are also relevant to us at an individual level. And, and I think uh, the more that we understand that, then, yeah, the more that we can, I suppose, leverage the timing as we're going to be talking about. Yes, well, from that example, it sounds like you can stack the odds in your favour by creating the conditions that will help get off to a good start that we'll talk about shortly. There's also planning for what you might do in the middle, but at first you don't just have to emphasise that the effort. It's more creating the broad conditions. And then I think what you were describing at the end, the getting together at the end, reflecting on things. Even if things haven't gone exactly the way you want, there can still be benefits that come from, say, what you've learnt. Or you might have had advantages that have come from what you've done different from what you expected. But also there's that learning, there's that kind of review. And then that might also then help starting on the next project by reviewing at the end what you've done with the last one. So yes, that's taking the timing very much into account. Certainly. And I suppose, Dad, before we get too much further, I will just mention as well that part of the reason that we're talking about some of these ideas today is we want to set up for next week's episode too, which we are very much looking forward to. And, and that's talking about the idea of a, a midlife crisis. And I suppose broadening out these ideas to, to, I suppose, life in some ways in terms of the beginning, middle and end of life and, and how some of these ideas relate to that too. But we did just want to, I suppose, lay a bit of a foundation today in terms of some of these ideas, maybe at a more kind of basic individual simple micro level before we expand it out next week to be talking about yeah, the midlife crisis and and something that uh, I know a few people out there will be looking forward to listening to. Yes and one thing when we talk about a midlife crisis it's acknowledging the middle stage of again a quest a process or whatever it's natural for us to go through a slump well, I suppose like we were talking about chronotypes and you can have that slump in the middle of a day and then a rebound later on. Even at a daily level, our energy levels and maybe effectiveness will vary, our concentration and all the rest of it. But there are times in any quest or major project we're involved in, it's natural that we might reach a point where we're stuck. And often there can be a lot of frustration that goes with the idea of stuckness, as though it's a bad thing, as though we're not dealing with things as we should be. But it's actually a natural part of life and change at times to be stuck. We've often talked in this podcast about the dark night of the soul. And so we will be expanding on that theme that sometimes being stuck or frustrated or not sure how to go ahead, depending on how we deal with that situation, there's actually a lot of good that can come from that. There's a lot of good that can come from that kind of reflection and understanding. And whenever we talk about behaviour change, changing a habit or whatever process of change, we talk about lapses being normal. And a lapse doesn't have to mean a relapse, feeling helpless, giving up, 
and being indefinitely stuck in our tracks. When we look at the theme of a midlife crisis next week, that will certainly help illustrate that. Well, certainly, and we'll, we better not get too far ahead of ourselves, Dale. We better save some for next week there too. But I think that uh, that point about getting stuck towards the middle, it, it's a good point because it illustrates that idea that there are some natural patterns that can happen over the course of something. And, and we will chat about the, the midpoint, and there's uh, some particular things I do want to discuss with you about that. But let's have a bit of a chat about the start now in terms of getting off to a good start because you know we might have a bit of an idea of what – it is to get off to a good start, and I would say that would have something to do with, for example, building momentum. But, but do you want to just give us a bit more of an idea of how do we get off to a good start with something? Okay, now I think that comes back to the way that you put it, leveraging the timing for change. We know that when people are going about change, and this certainly happens in therapy, a key thing is that people are feeling ready for change. We've talked before perhaps about a model of change where you start off at the pre-contemplation stage. Say, oh, I don't think I've got a problem with, say, how I deal with anger. It might be cigarette smoking. It could be anything. And the person is at the pre-contemplation stage. They're not looking to change it. Then there's a contemplation stage. And this certainly works well, this model with, say, addictions or substance abuse. This is where it was developed. Where the person might think, well, look, I might have a problem in some ways of say, using alcohol in this way. However, I don't think it's so serious or for whatever reason, I don't feel ready to deal with that yet. But then there's a point where people are ready to make some change and they're ready to take some kind of action. And this is where I think it's important to stack the odds in your own favour. And some of the key things that are going to make a difference are people envisioning what things would look like if their efforts turn out as they want. That actually means having a visual image of yourself, say if you're starting an exercise program, seeing yourself regularly engaging in walking or swimming or some other sport, seeing yourself at the gym exercising and looking ahead to the satisfaction you'll have after you've done that. Maybe feeling that you can walk up hills more easily, that kind of thing. Maybe even envisioning the kind of enjoyment that you might have from engaging in exercise with friends. So having some kind of picture of a goal that you have in mind can help. And so it's partly picking the timing when you're ready to make that start. Then you can actually help further by making some kind of commitment, not just to yourself, but letting others know, letting someone else trusted, a confidant know about the change that you're looking to make. That's also something that helps with the therapy process when someone is spelling out or working out with their therapist what goals that they have, how they would like things to be different, what hopes they have from therapy. It's spelling that out more directly. So then that helps for accountability and it helps for commitment. It's not just thinking of the reasons why you want to change, although that helps, but also thinking of what kind of obstacles might come up in the way. How might you deal with those obstacles or setbacks if they do come up? And part of that also could be drawing on the social supports around you. So in other words, it's preparing yourself to help get off to a good start because when people do get off to a good start, you get some extra momentum. And it means that Early on, if people are starting a new job or starting a new course or something like that, make that effort in the initial weeks and draw on that energy, the natural motivation that you have when making a start because when people have made initial steps and then appreciate it, 
give yourself some kind of acknowledgement or pat on the back for even the early little steps that you take in a certain direction. It's about building momentum. The start, it really helps to build momentum. Well, I think that's such a good point. And, and there's a couple of things I'd like to highlight out of that. Like the first thing is that, that you mentioned about, for example, like tying it to a goal. Like if you can have this like vision in mind about where you want to go with something, like what comes to mind for me there is that quote from Leonardo da Vinci. And we've spoken about it on the podcast before, but where he says, obstacles cannot crush me. Every obstacle yields to stern resolve. He who is fixed to a star cannot change his mind. So it seems to me that there's an element to which if we can find this kind of broad over overarching reason for doing something we've got like the goal in mind then it makes it a lot easier to get over some of those obstacles which might I suppose appear in those early stages and halt our momentum but the other thing that really came to mind to me there is as you were describing that is is like for example just how in sport how for example that it seems that's very similar to the way that sports people go about things in terms of you know if you're an aerial skier and you're going to fly down a mountain, do flips in the air. Like, it's a ridiculous thing that you're going to be doing. But the first thing they'll do is visualise themselves in that situation, you know. At this point, where am I going to move my arms and how is my body going to feel? And and so it really is that, I suppose, planning aspect. And even in team sport, it, you know, I would assume, and, and it seems, you know, from the, the few video games and stuff that I've played with sport, that is, if you're managing a team, the first thing you do at the start of the season is say, well, what are our goals for the season? You know, what what is do we realistically think that we can aim for and achieve? And, and that sets a bit of a point to orientate the team and everyone within that team towards. So I suppose that idea of picking you know, something that you really want to aim towards, like that seems to be such a central point to the start. But I really liked what you were saying as well before about, I suppose, leveraging the timing of something. You know, the timing's not always going to be right for making a change in something. And I remember one time listening to an interview with Robert Downey Jr., he said something really profound. He, you know, he's a really successful sort of actor and, you know, he's very world famous, all this sort of stuff now. But Robert Downey Jr. used to be a heroin addict. And, you know, as far as I'm aware, sort of, you know, was in court and arrested and, you know, was on the wrong side of the tracks there, so to speak, for a little while. And he was in this interview talking about getting off heroin. I said, oh, geez, that must have been the hardest thing you've ever had to do, you know, getting off heroin, dealing with all, you know, for example, the withdrawals, all this sort of stuff. And he said, actually, it wasn't getting off heroin that was the hardest thing. It was making the decision to get off heroin. So, you know, the implication is there were potentially times when he thought, oh, you know, I've got to do this, but it wasn't fully internalised. So, you know, he began the process, but there was an element of maybe fighting himself and maybe, you know, subconsciously was putting obstacles in his own way to sort of getting off heroin sort of thing. But I found it so interesting that he was saying about the hard thing in that situation was actually changing the intention in the first place and making the decision. And it seems to me that what comes with that is that once you do make the decision, there's a, a flurry of energy that comes with that. You know, as he was saying, he could almost ride the wave of momentum in terms of there was some energy that came with changing his intention in that situation, but it wasn't straightforward that his intention was changed. It was, it was as if that was the kind of hard thing. Once he'd done that, then he was able to, I suppose, leverage that for mobility in terms of he was able to actually put some action in place and move forward with getting off heroin in his case. Yes, and you mentioned Da Vinci's word resolve there and what a great example of that with Robert Downey Jr., that level of resolve that he clearly had that helped him, I take it, successfully deal with that problem. Yeah, it seems and so. so yeah. 
So that just shows that one of the main conditions for change is that readiness and that kind of resolve. But it's also recognising that early stage there will be the natural momentum. We can also talk about something new that we're doing. It could be a new job or a new course. It's almost like the honeymoon stage when you start off with something. And so it's worth channeling that energy and taking specific steps that can help in changing habits, changing behaviour, or engaging with a new kind of role. It's putting that energy in first naturally, as you're suggesting, catching that wave of motivation that goes with that. And I suppose the other thing that strikes me about this, like as I said, like it kind of implies that there was times when he did try and make that change and potentially he wasn't, I suppose, internally as ready as he he was later to be when he was able to successfully make that change. So what I wonder then is what can we do if we don't get that good start? Like I imagine there would have been times, you know, Robert Downey Jr.'s there, he's going, all right, this is the time, this is it for me now, this is the end of, you know, me doing heroin. And potentially if he's not ready to make that change, he's began that journey and he finds himself back at square one in terms of maybe relapsing again. Like, what could someone in that situation do when they've maybe not got that experience of really gaining momentum from the start straight away? Again, this is one of the key things we can call it a relapse prevention model. It's recognising that a lapse is not a relapse. And maybe the timing wasn't optimal that first time. Maybe some of the stresses came up or some of the disadvantage or hardship came up that made it more difficult to follow through with our goals. It really helps to have a bit of self-compassion with that because most meaningful change that we're talking about, we're talking about something that we're persisting with long term. It's not just something that you do for a few weeks. As we've talked about before, any meaningful change, you look to keep it going for about four months to change a habit. You keep a change going for about two years, you're changing your personality functioning. That's what we're often looking at for larger kind of change. It also means establishing ourselves on a good path, whether it be in a new job or in a course or whatever. There might be times when things aren't going so well. It's allowing ourselves scope for a reset. So let's just say we talk about behaviour change at the moment. Just say someone's looked to start an exercise program, for example, and they haven't followed through the way that they intended to. They could give up. They could just think, well, look, that was too hard or maybe this isn't for me or something along those lines. But by the same token, often people will feel a real disappointment or dissatisfaction from not following through the way they wanted. Well, that uncomfortable feeling can be helpful. That can remind the person they really did want to have that change in the first place. So it comes back also to that resolve to think again of what were your reasons of wanting to change in the first place? And what are some of the advantages of that? And what are some of the disadvantages of not changing? But still, allow for the realistic appraisal of what effort something's going to take. Because often people will think, well, Yes, look, it will take a lot of effort, but I would rather this goal work out. I would rather handle conflict situations more constructively. I would rather, say, continue with this exercise program. And that's where the person might look to reset. And with resetting, it can help to pick some kind of marker. It might be the start of a month or an anniversary, or some other special date, or it could be a holiday coming up. Some kind of marker, which is a little bit different from just any other date on the calendar, that can be something to aim for, and then give yourself a warm-up to making the change from then again, renewing your efforts. 
and recognising that many people, for example, who do change a habit or many people who do quit a substance or many people who do get an exercise program going, for example, it hasn't worked out the first time. Many people will have had a number of efforts that didn't work out quite that way. But again, sometimes it helps for people to think, well, is there something else I can add to the conditions that make it more likely that I will bring about that change? For example, will I look to get a friend to join me in this fitness program so it will help me stay motivated? Will I seek out a personal trainer to help follow through? Or just even in other ways, considering something else that you can do that nudges the odds a little bit more in your favour. So a lot of it is recognising that Elapse is normal and not getting too hard on yourself about that. It's allowing yourself scope for a reset. Well, then I wonder, like, what could that reset look like? Like, what are some of the, for example, like, what are some of the characteristics of that reset? Because I imagine, like, arbitrarily saying, all right, like, I'm starting again now. And then, like, potentially you've still got some of the, like, for lack of a better term, the negative residue of the attempt that may not have gone as well as you wanted to. How can you, I suppose, clean the slate, for lack of a better term, to be able to actually perform that reset and feel like you're starting again? It's not as if you're, you're continuing down the same, I suppose, failing pathway, for lack of a better term. I think one of the main things to take out of that is most people who successfully deal with a significant problem like an addiction don't just achieve their goals straight off the first time. Basically, again... Many people will have lapses before they are successful at dealing with something. Actually, people might have a number of relapses before being successful at something. But if people are going to persist at a goal, often they will find a way around things in the long run. So part of it is realising that the nature of change is not just going to be a smooth, linear kind of progression, if you like. They're likely to be fits and starts. It's almost like how evolution happens. There's a lot of evidence that evolution unfolds to some extent in fits and starts rather than just the very gradual change that we might have that big overview of. Well, certainly changes in our behaviour often will come with difficulties or lapses or slip-ups on the way. Well, I think it was, uh, I was just having a look at something, I believe, the uh, according to the Ontario Tobacco Survey, so I think it was released in 2016, uh, the average smoker will take 2.7 attempts at quitting before they finally quit. So uh, that seems to suggest that, yeah, there's definitely something in that. And I think it was the dealing with the affliction of addictions episode or the fighting the flat feeling episode where we expanded on this a little bit, talking about if lapses come and how to deal with those. But I think it is such a good point, that idea of like not going back to square one. Like if we can recognise that even if a start hasn't gone well, well, there's been a whole lot that's still gone with that in terms of where we've attempted to make a start and there's been some things that we've put in place and we've changed something even if it hasn't been able to, to be carried through. So I think that point about recognising that, well, hold on, it's not as if we've just gone down a dead end and we're going to have to go right back to the start of where we've been. It's recognising that, yeah, well, there can actually be something that comes from, for lack of a better term, a failed attempt at change. I think that's a big point that you're making about not going back to step one. And I'll mention something that comes up in a therapy process here. Often when people are working on a problem like, say, depression or panic attacks, or it might be an anger problem, but just, say, take depression or panic attacks, people might make progress for a period of time, and then they might find that they're further struggling with their mood more than they anticipate they would have. Or they might have made some progress in dealing with panic, 
but then they have a very difficult episode where, for example, they have a panic attack in a supermarket and they might feel that they've gone right back to the start. But it's very rarely the case, as you're describing. If people are working at a certain kind of problem, they've got a kind of goal in mind, they've got the reasons why they want to achieve that goal or work in that direction, then there's learning on the way, including there's learning from the lapses. I sometimes say, use a lapse as a lever, meaning getting some leverage of looking at, well, what didn't work so well that time? Was there something about the conditions or maybe you didn't have quite a level of support or maybe not quite a strategy how to deal with an obstacle that came up? It actually can help you look back at the situation and review it. And just because it's normal for people to struggle at different times, that's one of the reasons why in a therapy process we get people to monitor their well-being at the start of every therapy session. We do this in a very simple way. It's using something called the outcome rating scale. And people rate their individual, their social, their family, general well-being. This is done very quickly in about 30 seconds. And we map people's progress from session to session. Part of the reason we do that is we anticipate that quite a number of people will not be tracking and making the level of progress they would wish to make. We've actually got some quite formal ways of checking for that. We use an iPad and a computer program to see how people are tracking. And the truth is, just over 50%, but only just over 50% of people within five sessions would be showing significant steps, if you like, in the right direction in terms of their well-being. Now, that doesn't mean that everything's going wrong or the other 50% aren't doing the right thing. It just means we do look for progress early because we know that's, in some ways, it's a very important stage of therapy like any change to get that kind of momentum. If people aren't making that level of progress we'd anticipate based on these statistics, if people are not making the level of progress in the first five sessions that we might anticipate, then it's incumbent on us the client and therapist together, to have a discussion about maybe how things could be different. Is there something else that could be added to the therapy approach? Is there something that could be changed? And so by having that kind of conversation, and it's not a formula about what should be changed, it's just being open to ideas about what could change or what could shift in approach to make it more likely of nudging things in the right direction, if you like. So that's part of how a therapy process evolves right from the start anticipating that people might well not be making the progress that they would most hope for. However, that's actually also part of the process. You look, if there is a slip or there's not the progress that you'd want, what might not be going so well or what else might happen to nudge things further in the right direction? That's part of the normal process of change. Well, I must admit, like when you spoke about that, like at first I was, I was quite surprised by the frequency of that pattern in terms of like 50% of people seems like seems like a big amount. But I suppose like it also does make some kind of sense in terms of like you can't be prescriptive about a course of therapy. So there's going to be some collaboration and some integration that goes on. And as time goes on, the therapist is going to learn about the client and vice versa and this sort of stuff. So I suppose that does make a little bit of sense. But What really came to mind for me there was when you were describing that, and it was something that we spoke about, it's a recent podcast, I can't remember exactly which one, a couple of months ago now, but this idea of negative emotions, not necessarily just looking at them as negative emotions. For example, 
there's a reason a lot of the time for a negative emotion. And, and I think one thing that, that's really helped me in some ways recently is to not necessarily just classify things as negative emotions, like even a, a lapse and these sort of things. Like we can look at them as a is an inherently negative thing in some ways in terms of it's, you know, it's a failure to achieve our goal. That's a little bit black and white. But at the same time, I think if we look at things in terms of like, say, negative emotions versus adaptive emotions, like there can be some lessons that come out of negative emotions. There can be some things that, you know, our, our subconscious or our kind of somatic feeling, our, our ability to kind of feel and feel emotions and stuff, it, it can be telling us something that maybe something's not quite working out right for us, that although we started with a whole range of momentum, potentially there's something that just doesn't quite fit and we need to maybe go back to the drawing board on one slight element in order to, to recalibrate and go forward. But from what you were saying there, what I really picked up is that it's not worth... I suppose just discarding some of those negative emotions. It's not worth just going, oh, it's you know, it's uncomfortable and it's a failure and let's throw it out. Well, potentially there's some things that, you know, ourselves are trying to tell ourselves, if that makes sense. There's some some maybe deeper values that aren't quite being met, or or maybe there is something like, for example, social supports that's missing from our particular recipe towards our goal. So yeah, it just seems to me that if we can look at Maybe some of those, you know, what seem to be kind of negative eventualities and slightly change the perspective on them to be like, for example, they're telling us something, you know, what's the lesson in this? What is that slight little change that we can make to, I suppose, completely fulfill us rather than leave us with this slight feeling of things aren't necessarily going exactly as how I'd like them to. Yes, and when we talk about this, we're partly talking about the middle stage of things. And this can come up, for example, in the middle stage of therapy or the middle stage of a challenge where people have looked to meet a challenge early on. Let's just take the challenge idea of a pandemic early on. Now, many people are mobilised in different ways. People will be stressed in different ways or dealing with the uncertainty about how things might unfold. But in many ways, most people in the community at large adapted pretty well in dealing with a phenomenal, like say once in a century challenge of that type. And so there was something heartening about people largely being able to stay in employment. Certainly many people were challenged that way, but but over a period of time, I think that we could say that as a community, probably we managed better through that pandemic than we would have feared at first. But let's say in middle stages, many middle extended stages, again, we talked about fighting the flat feeling, for example, many people will have experienced a slump. And again, Daniel Pink talks about the slump that might occur in middle stages of something. Also, in a phase of therapy, if people are dealing with very challenging difficulties like chronic trauma and depression or difficulties to do with chronic pain, it's natural at times that people are going to feel somewhat helpless. They're putting lots of effort for dealing with things. There might be some kind of change, but by the same token, they're still dealing with a level of suffering or hardship. Certainly, it's not as if all their problems will have gone away. Well, naturally, that's a real challenge and there could be a slump attached to that. Well, it's natural to have some more flat feelings that go with that. But I think like you're suggesting, even then, it's an opportunity to maybe recalibrate. That could be a reminder to look at, well, what have been some small wins? Again, showing self-compassion and acceptance for what we've found difficult. 
putting things in a certain perspective, but also there's that ongoing process, including in the therapy situation, of thinking, what could we do differently? What's some of the kind of resource we can add to this? Are there other therapy strategies or skills that people can develop, coping skills that people can draw on, different pain management techniques, for example, that might make some kind of difference? And it's a matter of, again, persisting over time. And one of the remarkable things that happens with human beings is there are all sorts of things that we can adapt to over time. And I think that podcast episode with Mark Grant on dealing with chronic pain is a classic example of how even in facing persistent hardship, there are a lot of indications of how people can go relatively well of dealing with a problem that at first sight would seem potentially overwhelming indefinitely. But then there's the midlife theme that I think you were getting at earlier as well, that kind of slump that people can feel, where people can feel preoccupied with being stuck or somewhat helpless or uncertain, unsure how to look ahead, really struggling. So this gets back to the notion of struggles. And one thing that comes up again and again and again, it's certainly your daily experience as a therapist of seeing people hang in there with their struggles and what they might learn from that, what their feelings might be telling them about something they're dissatisfied in their lives in a certain area. Are there aspects of their work or how they're connecting with people or how they're relating to their own emotions or how they're dealing with their goals in life or working towards that? There are dissatisfactions that can be actually helpful to acknowledge and that can be a spur for change. As Daniel Pink describes it, it could be a slump those middle challenging periods, or it can also be a spark. We can have a spark of insight and motivation that comes from looking at how we'd like things to be different. Well, I think it's fascinating that idea of like a slump versus spark. And, and what is so interesting about it is, I suppose, that the prevalence amongst all, I suppose, processes of change in terms of the, the way that that slump happens. And I suppose just to illustrate that, like that is one of the things we will speak about next week when talking about a midlife crisis, like on a, on a macro broad level, that is an idea of a slump in some ways. But one thing that I saw this week, which I found fascinating just to illustrate, I suppose, how ingrained the idea of a slump is into this process of change was uh, some research done by Connie Gersick was her name and uh, she coined the term the uh-oh effect which it's a nice uh, nice neat phrase dad because basically she did this uh, experiment where she looked at bank staff hospital staff and university staff who had to complete projects and she was videotaping the staff and she was studying the staff over the course of their project she recognised this similar pattern where they would start off, you know, almost this kind of early flurry of activity, but then nothing would get done. It would almost be like they'd delegate their tasks and then nothing, right up until that midpoint that we've been speaking about in some ways. And, and then at that midpoint, it was almost as if they went, oh my goodness, we're halfway through this and we've done absolutely nothing. Like as she says, they went, oh, oh we're halfway through this and we are nowhere near as close to the end line as we thought we would be. But it was the degree to which this kept appearing over and over again in groups. Obviously, she spoke about, you know, staff in like a bank and a hospital, that sort of thing. But the other thing that I found really interesting about it is looking at, for example, sports teams. Like, you know, it's a bit different if it's a massive blowout. But at the same time, like, if you look at teams who are within touching distance of the other team and they're losing at half time, statistically, and particularly with basketball, I believe, but if you look at the team that's losing at halftime, and again, like 
Can't be losing by too much. But if you look at the team that's losing, they're more likely to win the game because they have more urgency. Like they go into the halftime break and their coach is saying, come on, you're losing. Like what can we do to fix this situation? Whereas the other team's going in and they're, you know, patting each other on the back and they're thinking, oh, we might only be up by a point here, but we're winning. And, you know, what we're doing, it must be working. Well, if you look at the data, the team that's actually losing in that situation is going to do better. So it does just seem to suggest that there's this natural, I suppose, midpoint that comes with things, like whether it is a shorter project over the course of an afternoon or whether it is a you know something longer, like the course of a life, there's this almost natural halfway point that you know, it might even be subconscious at times, but it leads us to, I suppose, just look at things and kind of go, hold on, where are we in the whole grand scheme of where I want to be? Yes, and so it's interesting because that also links middles with endings because the midpoint is acknowledging an ending. And I was struck also by that research that suggested that whether a project was, say, four weeks or eight months or whatever, again, it was the midpoint, regardless of the length of the project, that people would have that uh uh-oh effect thinking, oh, we've only got two weeks to go for this assignment or we've only got four months to go for this project. It was that midpoint where people really got going. And that's where it's quite remarkable thinking at that macro level, again, a midlife crisis, typically impacting around about 40 years of age, give or take two or three years, which used to be around the midpoint of an expected long lifetime, about 80 years. So it even works at that kind of level. But it means that when we have a goal that's meaningful and we recognise that time is finite, And especially it helps if we feel that we're kind of on track with that goal, but we're aware that time is finite. That can be very motivating. And so one of the themes that comes up with this is the benefit of setting deadlines. And that means we're going to be more conscious that, hey, time is finite. I can't allow this to go on forever. Okay, redouble my efforts, perhaps, but also Set little steps or goals that are a bit objective. How do I want progress to look? What would that involve? What's something specific and practical that I can do? And that's where in that midpoint, acknowledging the end point, that's a way of using timing to help bring about change. Like you were saying at the start, leveraging the timing to bring out change, helping that by setting deadlines and appreciating when we're at the midpoint and recognising the ways that we are perhaps on track, give ourselves that encouragement, but also, well, I suppose, giving ourselves a bit of a kick up the bum if we think that we're maybe able to get on a little bit more. Well, certainly, and, and again, like this is something that very keen to discuss with you more about next week in the context of a midlife crisis. But before we get there, Dad, let's, let's quickly finish off with the ending now because I know you mentioned something that Daniel Pink mentioned in his book that I found fascinating that was to do with the ending, and that's to do with how the ending of something can affect our perception. For example, if we have 10 years of something going well and it ends poorly, that can affect the way that we saw the whole 10 years in the first place. So do you want to just speak to that idea a little bit in terms of how we perceive an ending and how that can change our perspective on what's come before it? Okay, well, one classic example of that is when we look at, say, pain. If people have experienced pain over a period of, say, several hours and you ask people to rate their pain... There are two time points that make a big difference to how people rate their pain. It's when the pain was at its most intense and also pain at the end or at the most recent time. 
Now, if people, for whatever reason, it might be, say, a medical procedure, experience more pain at the very end of the procedure, then they'll experience the whole process, the whole experience to have been more difficult, more painful. Whereas if people have been under a fair bit of pain, but then towards the end that eased, then that makes a difference to how people remember that. So this is part of the importance of endings. It probably means also if people are in a very challenging, say, work circumstance and they're about to leave that situation, anything that you do to help end up finishing on a more positive note can be worthwhile. It might even be through the meaningful connections of people that you're saying goodbye to. Or it might be reviewing some of the projects that you've worked on that actually contributed something really worthwhile. It's paying attention to the endpoints. It even applies, for example, to how we remember a holiday. The more positive the last days were of that holiday, the more positively we'll remember the whole holiday. Or if things were difficult the other way, for example, if you had some kind of significant accident right at the end of the holiday, that's going to tend to taint your memory of the whole holiday. So it's paying attention to endings. And so I suppose that means if someone has been living somewhere for a few years and they're about to move into state, just pay attention to those late times, those late days or weeks or months and make the most of that because how you experience that time will impact on your memory of that stage of your life. And as one of the broad examples, I'd actually mention the pandemic for that. We're probably at later stages of the pandemic. In some ways, we're still in a middle stage. We might be in a later stage. It's not completely known whether there'd be other variants. But it's worth at least having the back of our minds that how we come through this pandemic in the long run, it's worth acknowledging some of the even little wins that we've had, some of the things that we've managed with fairly well, some of the things that turned out better than they otherwise might have. We can always envisage how things could have been significantly worse and that would have been a realistic concern, that they would have been that much worse. I think that's an example of as we come through and focus on ways we've been resourceful or resilient or there were silver linings, that's why we highlight silver linings in our podcast. If we acknowledge silver linings in a challenging situation, we'll even remember that situation better in terms of having felt more resourceful or having got through that better. What I take from that, Dad, is basically any time I'm moving anywhere, I'm having a big old going away party now because I reckon that's uh, that's the way to go in terms of setting yourself up. But I think they're all good examples. And the obvious one that came to mind for me there was like relationships in terms of, you know, I think we, we can all think of one or two people who, who may have come out of a relationship and it hasn't ended so well and, and that may have affected their view of the relationship in itself. So but I suppose what, what that really brings me to remember is Back at university was that uh, was that tutor that we had who basically mentioned, look, even if this project doesn't go well, come together at the end of it and, and just mark the end of the project. And like oh, I still remember all those people who I was in those groups with and I oh, couldn't tell you the mark we got. I don't think it was a particularly good mark in any way. I wasn't even particularly close to those people compared to some others. But I think I've still got a few of them on Facebook and this sort of thing. And uh, and yeah, it's just a, it's a different, I suppose, feeling that I have about that, I suppose, group situation through demarcating the end of it. And again, yeah, all those uh, all, all those examples that you mentioned there. I think if we can even just do something small, you know, just to say, look, this is the end of the process that we've been through and now we can move on to something else. If you can demarcate that, it just allows you to, I suppose, 
to borrow that term from a relationship again, have that closure, which is, you know, a term that we often hear in terms of relationships. But I think it speaks to that point. Yes, certainly psychologically how we deal with challenges or any experiences, a lot does come back to the endings and it does help to have rituals of connecting with people when we say goodbye and all the rest of it. But something you were getting at about those study groups, for example, one of the things that that illustrated well is the appreciation of learning, what we can learn from situations even if they don't go well. And that gets to a theme of endings more generally appreciating a sense of meaning of things. This is something, as people get older as well, they're more interested in things like life satisfaction and meaning. And this goes with people being more reflective, if you like, at later stages of life. It's appreciating looking back and finding meaning. And this theme even comes up in movies. Like a lot of great movies aren't just ending up on a super happy note. Again, as Daniel Pink described, often with movies they might end with a sense of some level of sadness or poignancy. Things might not have gone exactly the way that people wanted, but they might have got some life learning out of that or appreciated other important things to them, such as their connections with people that they've made. And I might say, look, this is even reflected in funerals as well. Such an important ritual in appreciating meaning in life. Like what makes the most difference? What are our main priorities? And how much of that will also relate to the connections that people have made with others? It's also going to be to do with what people have achieved or what they've given to the community or others around them. But a lot of it will come back to those kind of connections that people have made. So when we're at the end of some project or quest, it might be a course or it might be a job or might be having lived in a certain kind of place, it's worth also looking at the meaning that we can gain from that, what we've learned from that, how we've changed as people and having that larger overview of things that we've gained, even if everything didn't turn out exactly as we would have wanted. Well, absolutely. And and Oh, yeah, I really like that point about uh, in movies how it doesn't always end happily because I, th- I think it doesn't. I was watching that movie Goodwill Hunting last night, Dad, which is one of my favourite movies. And that bit at the end when I don't want to give it away for anyone who hasn't seen it, but what a movie and, and a good example, I think, of how uh, situations don't always just end up happily. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing as well. But I suppose just to finish up from me, like I found it so interesting what you were saying there and, and having a, a very quick look at, I believe, Bruce Tuckman's stages of group development model he speaks about when you come together as a group the stages that you go through are forming so like coming together storming so that's where everyone gains each other's trust from having ideas and basically brainstorming norming so basically resolving the conflicts performing acting like the group in the dynamic that comes out of those first few stages but then the last stage is adjourning or mourning And I think that's such an important stage because of all those reasons that you mentioned there and just it does allow us to, I suppose, get that closure to be able to reflect on things and extract the meaning from something. If we we do have that explicit time to look back on things and say, all right, that, that was good for these reasons, that was bad for these reasons, well, it really does just set us up to be able to take as much as possible from that situation and go on with it. Yes, and so with groups, you mentioned that storming stage, that can be very uncomfortable to the level of conflict that comes up. And it's just such an important part of the creative process, as well as the notion of adjourning, thinking of when you start the group, when you're forming the group, having in mind what the adjourning would look like, how you might hope that to be, 
that would include maybe not just the goals of the group, maybe in performing some kind of task together, organising some activity, or it might be a therapy group, but also looking at the kind of connections that you'd want to have with others. So yes, when you look at that group process, the storming, dealing with conflicts, often with others, but also adjourning how you would like things to be at later stages, that's certainly got themes that overlap with a midlife crisis when a lot of the conflict can be internal. And yet we might think, how would we like our lives to unfold? How would we like that to be? If we realise we're at a later stage of our life, what would we hope to look back and reflect on of what we've experienced in our lives? That's a, it's something that can concentrate your mind. Very much so. And, and something that I'm very much looking forward to getting into you next week in much more detail, Dad. And, and look, I've, I have enjoyed today's podcast, I must admit, but look, I, I will just let everyone know, like it's, it's one that I've found a little bit more difficult. And I'm not sure if, if you're a bit the same, Dad, but I suppose part of that is that these ideas seem to just relate to so many things in terms of, you know, if I want to change a habit and if I want to start exercising in the morning, this is going to be relevant. And that's something that's completely individual. Whereas if I'm in a group situation, there's other people involved too, well, then these ideas are relevant there as well. And then, of course, as we'll speak about next week, if we look at something as broadly as a lifetime, then these ideas pop up there too. So I think there's so much in them. But I think that broad idea of if we can look to get a good start, if we can get as much momentum as possible, if we can recognise what is involved in that middle stage, that there is likely to be a lull, but we can either, I suppose, go forward with that or we can allow ourselves to panic and be a little bit overwhelmed by that. And then, of course, the ending, if we can, I suppose, choreograph that to, I suppose, gain as much meaning from it as possible, as you mentioned there, we'll Regardless of whether that's something on a very micro level or at a macro level, there is going to be that relevance there too. So very much looking forward to chatting with you next week about uh, getting into some ancient history, Dad, is uh, one of my favourite things to be talking about. So that's going to come up a little bit next week too. But it's been good, I think, to set some of the foundation for today. So so we can certainly refer back to some of these ideas and and I hope there has been something in it as well for people who do want to make a change at a, at a behavioural level or a habit level too. Yes, it's been a little bit more of a complicated topic than I imagined at first, I must admit, because there's so many ways in which our lives and our experiences and our behaviours, if you like, are affected by timing. So yes, this has certainly sensitised me to that. And look, I think we can say we actually had a few more resets for this podcast (laughs) than we normally would. It was actually more tricky in some ways to get our head around it and the relevance of this in different ways. But hopefully it does sensitise others as well to the notion of how timing makes a difference. Sometimes we'll have more energy and motivation running with us. Sometimes it won't be the optimal time to make a change. It's natural at times to have lapses or sometimes go through a slump. So yeah, it's, it's being forgiving with ourselves about that, being a bit accepting of that, having a bit of self-compassion about that, but also recognising that there are times when things are so important we do want to channel our energy and make an effort that keeps on going. Well, certainly, and, and as you say, can, can certainly speak to the value of a reset today, Dad. That, uh, that little five minutes of fresh air worked well, I think. So I suppose we can uh, speak to the value in, uh, in some of the material today. And, and, of course, thank you to Daniel Pink as well for his book, When 
the scientific secrets of perfect timing, and we'll put the resources for today's podcast, of which Daniel Pink does have a, a couple of resources as well, so we'll put those up there. Dad, I know you've written a couple of articles related to this theme, and so we'll put those on the podcast page for today, which you can access at psychspills.com.au. But Dad, I often say this, but I must admit, I mean it as much as any time, but I'm, I'm very much looking forward to next week now, because uh, looking into it throughout the week, it's just a, a fascinating topic, and can't say, hopefully, <laughs> that I've had a midlife crisis, but uh, I think the quarter-life crisis is something that uh, it's a little bit more prevalent than maybe it used to be, so I reckon that's something that we can unpack a little bit too. Yes, actually, I think you might be coming up to 29, which is the number one age that people start marathons. So who knows? <laughs> I don't know if that's the quarter-life crisis, but hey, you know, you might have some ructions ahead as well. Might have to get some new running shoes. Absolutely. Oh, we'll have to see how we go. I don't know if I've quite made that decision yet, Dad, but uh, once I set that intention, I'll let you know. <laughs>